Job chapter 16, verse 6, uh, Job said, Though I speak, my grief is not relieved. And if I remain silent, how am I eased? And so he had this great dilemma uh, that it didn't seem to matter what he did. If he talked or if other people talked with him, that didn't relieve his grief. Or if he just remained silent, that didn't seem to help either. So no matter which way he went, uh, he felt overwhelmed by his grief. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 through 18. For this we say to you, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. C.S. Lewis, again commenting about grief, said, I quite agree that the Christian religion is in the long run a thing of unspeakable comfort. But it does not begin in comfort, it begins in dismay. I have been describing, and it is of no use at all trying to go on to that comfort without first going through the dismay. In religion, as in war and everything else, comfort is the one thing you cannot get by looking for it. If you look for truth, you might find comfort in the end. If you look for comfort, you will not, you will not get either comfort or truth, only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin with, and in the end, despair. And so his point there, his focus is that if we're to ever find comfort, we find it in something that is actually true. We read the First Thessalonians 4 passage. That is the comforting truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate comfort because it is true. And so we stand on those things that are solid. And then little by little as we stand there, the comfort comes. But comfort is, is like many other things, it's elusive, it, it's, it's really the byproduct of the truth of the resurrection, of salvation, of the hope and the power of God, of His grace. And so those truths, and we, we've covered some of those uh, a week before last about the things we know about God, that those are the things we stand on, and yet there are many things left that we don't know. Grief is complicated because... People and relationships are complicated. They are hard to understand, and they are even harder to explain. And as a result, we tend to avoid subjects like that. We don't tend to talk about them with each other, and certainly when we're in the midst of them, uh, we're not sure what to say or what to think, and so uh, we are reluctant to dive into situations where we are so uncertain, and one of the reasons we're having this class and one of the reasons we study the Bible is so that we can eliminate a lot of that uncertainty and we begin to have more confidence and more direction and more understanding and more ability to speak. Um, and so in those situations, our default action is often no action at all. Uh, we don't know what to say, and so we say nothing. And we don't know what to do. 
and so we do nothing. And we certainly don't, on the other hand, want to be like Job's comforters, where we step in there and start handing out bad advice, bad analysis, uh, in the name of comfort, because that's no comfort at all. And so here we're kind of stuck between not wanting to be like Job's comforters, so-called comforters, and also... Uh, Because we're uncertain, then we, again, tend to do nothing because it seems like the safe thing to do. But uh, that's not what the Bible calls us to do. Therefore, it's important for us to understand what we can can about grief. We're not going to understand it all, but we can understand some. So, you know, oftentimes uh, uh, if we can't completely comprehend something, we don't want to do it at all. And yet the Bible has called us to do a lot of things where we're not going to understand it all, but we're still to do something. And so the Bible uh, it tells us quite a bit about both comfort and grieving. How to, how to comfort, what comfort is, and, and the, the fact that we're called to comfort, as well as speaking to those who are actually grieving and how they should respond in that grief. And so the Bible has something to say about both. We know, for example, that Jesus, we read in Isaiah 53, was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He goes on to say in 53.4, he, he has borne or carried our griefs and carried our sorrows. Is that true? Well, then we have a high priest that understands and sympathizes with us, who can help us. One of the things we learned this week at the pastor's conference, I'll probably mention it again today, but the primary function of the priest was not to be a mediator. And by the way, you are a priest, uh, the priesthood of all believers. What is the function of the priest? What am I doing right now? Is I'm leading you, I'm helping you uh, by being a teacher and a pastor uh, to lead you to God, to lead you to his word, to lead to help you. And that's your role. That's your job as priest, as representatives of the body of Christ, is to help others, to come alongside them and to point the way, to show them. Now, do they immediately always follow? No. Sometimes they resist. Sometimes you resist me. Sometimes children resist parents. But you keep at it. You keep doing it. And in time, we help one another in the right direction, God's word being the, the primary thing that's being ministered. Now, um, every person's grief is, of course, unique. And it has its own, everyone has, every situation, every circumstance has its own special uh, strong emotions and sorrows that come with those particular situations and individuals. And as a friend of mine used to like to say, you're, your broken leg doesn't help my broken leg feel any better. Um, nevertheless, I want to challenge a little bit of this. Your broken leg does enable you to sympathize with my broken leg. Um, but to, and so to say something that is true, and it is true, that grief is unique to the individual, does not mean that that is the whole truth. That's not all that can be said. So yes, my grief is my grief, your grief is your grief, but that's not all that can be said. There's more to the story, there's more truth to lay hold of. Grief is common to all people. Again, different kinds of grief 
in fact, what we need to understand is, is there is a certain existential truth about all of us, meaning that because we exist and you exist and we're separated, we're not the same person, our experiences, our interpretations, our, even, even from day to day, how I react today versus tomorrow or next year or ten years from now varies. I'm not even the same person in that sense because my experience is changing, my maturity level, uh, how I see things. So I'm changing and you're changing and we're always in this state of flux as individuals. And so every experience is received uh, and interpreted in different ways. And so while grief is common to all people, it differs with the individual and the circumstances. Uh, and they're, they're, but there also remains a unifying experience that is also genuine and also helpful. The Bible, for example, in Romans 12:15 says that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and we are to weep with those who weep. We are to come alongside our brothers and sisters and to, in, in, and to join in uh, in unity with them, whether they are rejoicing or weeping. And so we should honor and respect both the individual and the corporate nature of grief. And so let me point out, and I think this is very important to put this in perspective, uh, we're talking about grief, but we can say the exact same thing about joy. Your joy is uniquely your joy. In fact, every aspect of your life is uniquely yours. However, your joy, your sorrow, and your life are always connected and tied with the community's joy and sorrow and life. You're never alone. You say, well, I'm alone when I'm at my house in my bedroom and the door's closed. No, you're not. You're still connected by relationships. You're connected by covenant. If you're married, you have a husband or wife. If you have children, you're connected there. And if you're in a church, you're part of the body of Christ. Even when you're alone in your bedroom, you're not alone. God is with you. You're united to Christ. You're not alone. Now, you may feel alone, but you say, my feelings are not always trustworthy. I've, I've said when I, when I got married, uh, I was married, but I didn't feel married. I had to figure out what that meant to be a husband. It took a little while for that to soak in. When I had my first child, uh, had a son, uh, had a baby. I was a father. I didn't feel like a father just yet. It took a little while for that to soak in. The same is true when I was ordained as a pastor. So there can be objective things that are so. I am not alone. I may feel alone. We see that in the Psalms frequently as David is lamenting and crying out in his loneliness or sorrow on his bed. And yet, he's always brought back to the congregation. He's always brought back to God and to the people of God. And so, if we, if we are cut off, or if we cut ourselves off from the community, from family, from church, or friends, then both our joys and our sorrows are diminished. One of the things that uh, Pastor Wilkins made a comment on at the pastor's conference this week that I thought was uh, really drove this point home for me is he said, uh, 
that one day he was at his house and he observed a gorgeous sunset and he was disappointed that no one else was at home to share it with. Because when we have beauty, when we see something, we can enjoy it, but we enjoy it more if we can say, hey, come here, look at this, look at how beautiful this is. We find another level of joy in that situation when we can share it with someone else. That's why we like to go to movies together or uh, discuss events or we have all kind of communal events. We're having one right now. Uh, That's why the the community community, uh, assembly of of the people of God, uh, the communion of the saints is so critical to us because that's where we function the best. Because God said it is not good for man to be alone. So for each person, all things are unique and personal as well as corporate. I can't feel exactly what you feel, but I can, what I can do is this, I can love you, I can sympathize with you, I can weep with you or rejoice with you, I can bear your burdens, I can comfort you, and we're going to talk about how in a moment, I can stand with you, next to you, be present with you. Those are important things to do. They don't fix everything. They don't bring back the person that's lost. That's not, what they, that's not their purpose. But they can comfort. And even if I haven't experienced anything like what you have, Jesus says in Hebrews 4.15, or it says of Jesus, that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. We can always come alongside, uh, uh, come alongside one another and help, again, which is our priestly function. We can help point the way to Jesus. We can help point the way to the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. We can remind one another of what we already know but need to hear again from the Word of God. Yeah, I know that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Yes, I know that we don't grieve like those without hope because we do have a hope. I know that. Thanks for reminding me of that. And even if the relief is not immediate, and it often isn't, we do know that God's Word is effective. Isaiah 55:11, So shall my Word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. So God's Word is powerful. But again, just like the words of parents or others, those words don't always have that immediate effect. But oftentimes what we find is down the road we reflect and we remember that conversation, those words. At the time, I didn't really want to hear that. But I sure am glad I heard it. And it was helpful. It took ten days or ten weeks before it soaked in. Now, I know that we can make a difference for one another, and the reason I know it is because the Bible tells me so. Words do comfort. As we read our text from 1 Thessalonians, comfort one another with these words. And you think about this, when a child bumps their head, what do they do? They run to mommy. And what does she do? She kisses it. She gives them a hug, and she assures them that they are going to be all right. And sure enough, a miracle takes place. It's much better now. You see? 
That's how it works. I can't explain it. The bump's still there. Sometimes there's even a little blood. You don't let them know that. Um, and, uh, but it's not just any words that we use in comforting one another. The Bible tells us they are the words of life. It is a balm that is applied to a wound. And again, when you apply medicine to a wound, it sometimes takes a while for that to work and to bring about healing. Uh, we're told that God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And when we're in grief, that is a dark place. We need light. When we're in grief, we're confused. Uh, we're in shock and our world has been turned upside down and everything is in chaos. But the word is a lamp to our feet. It, it provides some direction and sense of reminder of who we are and where we are and that the story is not over and that we are... Uh, that, there, that there is a real hope that's set before us. Speaking of the inspired scriptures, Peter admonishes concerning their power in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 19, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Let me read that passage again. I've not noticed that. Until this week when I was working on this, and I thought, that's a great passage. Again, he, it specifically, he's talking about the inspiration of the Scriptures and what the Scriptures do, which you do well to heed, to pay attention to, as a light that shines in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And that's the power of God's Word. And so allow me to remind you of the power of God's words. We spoke about this last year in a series of sermons, but just briefly, words are symbolic of thought. They are symbolic of intent. They are symbolic of action. Words are themselves a form of behavior. I am doing something when I speak to you. What can I do for you? Well, one of the things I can do is speak to you, acknowledge you, Express my sympathy to you. Uh, pray with you. We know that God's words are powerful, and as God's words go forth, they change the world. They create. They generate new things. They sustain old things. And perhaps most important, they bring about the resurrection and regeneration of the dead. As creatures who are made in the image of God and Having been given the unique ability of language, our words are also powerful. They, too, are forms of behavior and reveal our character. Our words can edify, they can build up, or they can tear down, they can wound. Our words can be violent words, which are a form of violence, and or they can be soothing words, which are a form of comfort. The quality of our words has the power to affect a situation. Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer, for example, turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Our words change the atmosphere, change the spirit of a situation. And then, of course, our text this morning, uh, words comfort. Comfort one another with these words. In times of sadness and sorrow and grief, there is often a feeling of helplessness. But God has given us a kind of salve that, when used wisely, can bring real comfort and real blessing. 
When we bring God's Word, when we bring words of kindness, encouragement, words of truth, we remind one another of what we already know but need to hear again. And sometimes the impact of those words, as we've mentioned, comes at that moment, but at other times they come later down the road, a delayed effect. So praying with someone is a great way to bring words of comfort. It's to bring them to God. May I pray with you? As you weep with those who weep, you also make your request known to God. Oh Lord, be with my friend here. Help them. Love them. Again, you may say amen, and they may not feel a bit closer to God just yet. But they will remember your love. They will remember your affection. They will remember that you were there. They will remember those words. And God will bring them to their remembrance in time. Paul understood this when he wrote Ephesians 6, 21 and 22. But that you also may know my affairs and how I'm doing, Tychius, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you, whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs and that he may comfort your hearts. And so, in this case, they were concerned about the Apostle Paul, um, and so he sent someone to bring words of comfort to let them know he's okay. He's going to be all right. And so, again, words were able to bring comfort. So... um, as we deal with the death of a loved one, and as we pointed out when we did our series on death, if you live long enough, uh, everyone else, if you live the longest, everyone else in here is going to die before you. So it's, all, it just, you know, it's always just a matter of where, where we are in line, and since we can't know that, we, we move forward. So either you're the next one that's going to die, or somebody in this room is going to die before you. Uh, we don't like to hear that. Well, just get used to it. It's true. Okay, it's just uh, I'm not saying we should take, make it light light of it, but it is going to happen, and you're either going to be ready for it or not, and that's what we're doing. We're trying to lay a plan, a foundation. You don't wait until the tornado is coming up your driveway to have a plan. Uh, what do we do when a tornado comes? You need to think about that before the tornado comes, and I assure you, uh, the tornado is coming, and for for many of us, it has come before. Uh, there's a lot of other metaphors. Uh, Bob Dylan's A Slow Train Coming. Um, a lot of other images of this idea, but it's happening, so we need to get ready. And so we need to focus on how to comfort one another and how to obtain God's gift of comfort and peace. So uh, we have, in this case, two parties, or in really more than two, but you have those who are grieving, let's say a family that is grieving, and then you have the broader family, the church in this case, that is, is now called to come alongside that immediate family that's grieving and to love them and comfort them. How do we do both? You have both those who are, who are grieving, who need to know how to receive God's comfort. They often haven't been taught about that. We're just, we feel alone. We feel left there. So part of what we need to do is prepare ourselves for our own grief by knowing what God says and knowing what... Uh, how I should be looking at it, having a right perspective. Does that mean it's going to be easy or I'm going to be happy? No, this isn't about, I want to emphasize this over and over. Nowhere in the Bible are we told not to grieve. It is real grief, and we are to grieve. Grieving is one of the things God made us to do. But there's a right way and a wrong way. 
There are parameters just like everything else. Be angry and sin not. Okay? So there, there are many things that, that we have, but we also know that almost everything we have can be abused or misused or misunderstood or in our ignorance we can not reap the benefits that we would have if we were informed. There are many uh, paradoxes or mysteries in the Bible. For me, one of the greatest ones is found in James 1, uh, verses 2 through 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its per- a perfect work or maturing work that you may be mature and complete and lack nothing. How can I find joy in the midst of a trial, even a severe trial? And yet, this is what God calls me and you to do. And again, we don't want to confuse joy with some trite silliness or what we would call happiness. Uh, If you're in a trial uh, and you're in pain or in grief, there's not a happiness in that superficial kind of jovial way. But underneath all that, there can be a joy because we begin to see purpose and meaning even in those difficult things. An explanation is provided in this text which indicates that God is at work in the trial to accomplish His perfecting, maturing work in us. Secret things are going on behind the scenes. By the way, it reminds me of one of the quotes I saw from C.S. Lewis. I may not have it exactly right, but... uh, He said, uh, God's love is different than our kind of love. We'll often look at a situation and say, well, if God's so loving, why did he do that? Because if it were me, I would never do that. And he said, well, God has a different place to play. He sees the whole picture. He's doing other things that we don't comprehend as children. But he says, if you think God won't hurt you, you've never been to a dentist. And so God is doing some things uh, that are painful oftentimes, but for our good. Things that will surprise us, again, those things that are going on behind the scenes, things that will surprise us and delight us, if not today, then at some point in the future. Remember, there is a point in your future and my future where there will be zero grief. Which means whatever grief I may feel today will be taken away. How could that be? I can't imagine it going completely away, perhaps, because then I'll see as he sees. It'll all make sense. It'll come together. And there won't be any point of grief there. Suffering is unpleasant, but in Christ, suffering is not without meaning and purpose. Now, at the center of giving comfort and in being comforted is the central truth that must be communicated and received. That's why we're here. Romans 15:4 For whatever things were written in the Bible uh, whatever things were written before which we have recorded in the Bible were written for our learning that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. So Paul says the, the Bible is given to us for this very reason to give us comfort and to give us hope. So we should be reading it and seeing how God works and seeing the story of sin and redemption of Death and life and resurrection and hope and all those things, that's why we have the Word of God. The Scriptures were written uh, to give us hope, and apart from the Scriptures, there is no basis for hope. 
And I was talking to my apologetics class uh, this Friday, and, and we asked this question frequently to drive the point home. If there is no God, if there is no resurrection, if the Bible's not the Word of God, then tell me why anything is wrong. Tell me why anything means anything. And there is no answer to that. You cannot make sense of anything if this isn't true. It is meaningless. And so let's go straight to the most comforting truth of the Bible, and that is God's revelation, His revealing, His pulling back the curtain regarding the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection really happened, and that changes everything. This is the central event. The Bible says that at the return of Jesus, everyone who has been a faithful follower of Him will be raised in the first resurrection. 1 Thessalonians 4, which we read the last part of, but he says, I do not want you to be ignorant, which means that we start out that way. Uh, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, those who have died, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Those are the comforting words that we're to comfort one another with. Revelation 20, verse 6, Blessed and holy is he who has a part in the first resurrection. What about the rest of the dead? Uh, But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. And so, uh, you have a first and second resurrection. The bottom line is all of God's people are going to be raised again. They will be resurrected. All of us will be. Now, I think I have time for one more section here, um, and some of this is a little bit uh, kind of shifting gears, but I want to say something about reminiscing and crying and laughing. John 11 tells the story of Lazarus' death and resurrection. You'll recall that not only did, Je- did Jesus not criticize the family and friends of Lazarus for weeping, but John 11:35, that short verse of the Bible, Jesus wept. Jesus grieved. And so the Bible teaches us to sympathize and to empathize with others who are grieving. After someone's death, it is important for loved ones and friends to spend time together, to reminisce and to talk about their memories, and to bring forth warm reflections and tears and even laughter. That recalls the value of the life that we are now separated from. And when someone wants to talk about a deceased loved one, then you should be an attentive listener. Don't try to change the subject. Sometimes we feel awkward and we want to change the subject or not bring it up. Listen. I can remember my first experience with death as a young teenager. And I'll say a little bit more about this in a minute, but at least when I grew up, children were kind of protected, so-called, from death. I think that's a bad idea. Uh, but understandable. When both my grandfather uh, died uh, in May of 1968 and my Uncle George in May of 1969, a year later, I noticed a couple of things. It was kind of my first experience with this sort of thing. First, in both cases, as the family and friends gathered at my grandparents' house, 
there was this blend of tears, sometimes uh, even sobbing. Uh, and then it would be changed in 15 minutes or 30 minutes, and I would hear laughter. And I remember thinking that was so odd, how you go from this extreme of maybe somebody over here in one part of the room or in another room, uh, as we would often say, falling apart, having, you know, sobbing, crying, and grief. And then over in another room, I'd hear my uncles or others telling a story uh, about uh, their brother or loved one, and there would be laughter. And I, th- I thought, this is a real incongruity. Uh, and I, I was really more taken back, I think, by the laughter and the storytelling. I kind of expected the, the tears, but I didn't expect the other. Second, the grief was much more pronounced with the death of my uncle. The, death, uh, the difference between the death of my grandfather, who had been disabled by a stroke since 1957 and had been ill for quite some time before his death, compared to the sudden death of my uncle at age 43, who was in an accident and who left a wife and six children, was dramatically different. This difference was especially evident in my grandmother, who had first lost her husband, but now had lost her child. Nevertheless, in both cases, there were joyful remembrances in the midst of the deep grief. Now, we have all been through certain trials which equip us to be of great comfort to others. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4, I read this last night at, uh, in the hospital room with the Sowells. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. There is a lot in there. One of the ways our trials benefit us is that we learn compassion for others and the comfort that we receive should then teach us how to give that comfort to others. We, in the midst of this, by the way, should especially not overlook the needs of children or hide death from them. Mary Nell's story and the loss of her parents, particularly her father, uh, was, uh, it's kind of odd. You, you come home from school and your father has died and, and they kind of shuttle you into another room and, and, uh, and tell you, but you're kind of not, they want to distract you and get you busy doing something else. Or one of my cousins, when my uncle died, and he was uh, a couple of years older than me, but he said, uh, you know, when, when grandfather died, uh, he wasn't even allowed to go to the funeral because the question is, is he too young? Is it going to be too upsetting? And so we end up with this artificial thing that I think many years ago was quite the opposite. If someone died, they would have a body lying stayed in a home, sometimes for some considerable time. And the community would come and we'd embrace the idea of death. I remember hearing a lady speak who had been a prisoner in Auschwitz and uh, had, had survived that, but she just made the comment that most people will die alone in a room with a bed and a nightstand. And I think we should not fear death as God's people. We don't like it. It is the enemy. But it's an enemy that's been conquered. And we should not be afraid of it. And we should 
should learn from it. After a death, children often don't know what to think and say. They have no ability to interpret the events. I was thinking about that story where a father takes his six-year-old son to a baseball game, and uh, there the score is tied in the ninth inning, and the home team hits a, well, the batter hits a grand slam home run. And everybody's yelling and screaming and, and joyful over the home run. And the little boy's kind of looking around. He saw the pitch. He saw the swing of the bat. He saw the ball go deep into center field. But he doesn't understand baseball. He has no means, how, he doesn't, he can't interpret the meaning of what just happened. He's not sure why everybody is so excited. You've got to have some context to be able to take that event and and give it some meaning. And so they need understanding and comfort and reassurance and need to be filled with love and security and hope. And they need to be with family and sharing in the discussions and the grieving and the healing. Well, we are out of time, so I'm just going to stop there. We didn't quite get to everything, but we're not in any hurry. Uh, I I want to invite you uh, to... Give me your feedback somewhere along out here. I think we probably have another couple of weeks of this. I want to do some Q&A and have a time for us to just discuss these things. But if you have something that you think would be helpful or a question or a, a story or something that you want to uh, be able to share with the rest, let me know about that and we'll try to plug that into this because the idea is to give us kind of a, uh, a reservoir, if you will, to draw from. Uh, as we go forward. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the comfort and the hope of your word. Thank you for your people that you've surrounded us with and for our families and for the love that we know. And even in our grief, Lord, we know that we grieve because we loved. And we also grieve not like those without hope, but we grieve with hope, knowing that that's not the end. So bless us, Lord, as we try to be better equipped as saints to live and to love and to serve. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.